In the year 2004, uh, the book, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman came out. And uh, it's a book that really, the premise of the book, The Five Lang- love, Langu- love Languages, is that the ways in which we give love and the ways in which we receive love can be described and understood as different languages. And some people are more fluent in one love language than they are in another. And knowing someone else's love language helps you express your love to that person in a way that he or she can best receive. Now, the five love languages, many of you have probably read it or are familiar with it. It's a bestseller. Over 10 million English versions of it have been sold. Uh, This book is not without its critics, but it's proven to be helpful to people. And it really has been eye-opening for many really has. And for many, I mean men. Very eye-opening for men. Um, as we realize, uh, our wives don't receive love necessarily the way that we want to give love. And here's the five love languages real quick. This is not the point of my message, but this is helpful for you uh, if you're married. The five love languages are receiving gifts, words of affirmation, uh, acts of service, physical touch, and quality time. And you can actually go online and take a little test and learn what is my love language, and more importantly, what is the love language of the people around me? And it's important to know each other's love language because otherwise you may be trying to express your love to your spouse or to your friend or to your family member, but you're doing it in a language that they're not fluent in, and so they can't receive it. So for example, I love to give gifts, and giving gifts is one of the love languages, and that's sort of my thing. I, I just find a lot of joy and satisfaction in giving people gifts and watching them open their gifts. But my wife's love languages are quality time and gifts of service. So I could be expressing all the love in my heart to her by giving her things, but in the end, all she really wants is for me to spend meaningful time with her and to actually do something for her. So the difference between a gift and an act of service is a gift is something maybe I've purchased for you and here it is. But an act of service is really something I've done for you. So I painted the bedroom for you or I took out the trash for you. And I can even see in Erin's life when I do little things around the house, probably not as often as I should, she's so, she kind of comes to life. She's grateful because that's her love language. And uh, I was thinking about this book and you know, the question behind the book, The Five Love Languages, and the reason why I think it was so successful is because at the end of the day, we want to know this, we want to know the answer to this question. How do I please the person in my life that I most love? How do I please them? And I was wondering to myself, what, what is God's love language? How do we please God? The author of Hebrews in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 6, answers as for us. The author of Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever is going to draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So that's God's love language. If we're going to please God, if we're going to cause God to uh, have delight in who we are and what we've done, then it all has to go through faith. But what kind of faith? What kind of faith pleases God? And as we continue our journey through the book of Mark We're going to arrive this morning at a well-known story in Mark chapter 2, and we're going to see two things this morning. Number one, we're going to see the remarkable faith of four nameless friends, and then we're going to see the response of Jesus, which in many ways is even more remarkable. So the remarkable faith of four unnamed nameless friends, and then the response of Jesus, which is in many ways even more remarkable. So let's read beginning in Mark chapter 2. We'll read the first five verses. This is speaking of Jesus. It says, And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. 
And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. This house is packed full. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Okay, so you get the picture here. Four men, four friends are carrying their friend who's paralyzed. And when they could not get near Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. When we look at this story, we're going to learn this morning three characteristics about faith that pleases God. Three characteristics about the faith of these four friends. And the first one is this, is in your notes if you're a note taker, faith that pleases God is faith that has heart. Faith that has heart. So Jesus is back in Capernaum, and at this point in his life, this is where he's living. It says it was his home. This is his hometown. He's back, and people hear Jesus is back in town, and they want to go see him, and word about him has been spreading. And so people go to the home where he's staying, and in this time, in, in this culture, and in this, uh, in this geography, homes would have maxed out at about 40 to 50 people. Okay, So we're not talking about hundreds and hundreds of people. Maybe that's what you've pictured, but there's about 40 to 50 people who have crammed into this house. It's standing room only, except for the religious scribes, you, you read later that they were sitting down. They found seats, but everybody else is standing. And, and they're all crammed in here. And it says that Jesus was preaching the word to them. Something, when I was studying the text this week, that phrase really stuck with me. I love that idea. A lot of times we think that Jesus came to do miracles and to heal people and to turn water into wine and to die on a cross. And that's all true. But don't ever forget that Jesus came to preach the word. He's preaching the word to the people. And this is really significant in our message this morning and worth noting because according to Romans 10, 17, all faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So anytime we're going to talk about faith, we have to remember that for the Christian, the Christian faith, everything that we believe and every ounce of belief that we have is based on the written word of God and the incarnate word his name was Jesus. So these four friends have heard about Jesus. Maybe, maybe they even um, have seen him do a miracle, seen him heal someone. And so they're determined to get their friend, this paralytic, to Jesus. And they get there, and they see the scene, and they realize we're too late. The house is full. I mean, not another single person could fit into that house, let alone four guys carrying their friend on a mat. And now, Here's what a lot of people would have said at that point, right? Here's sort of the expected responses. Well, let's come back tomorrow. I mean, we don't have to do this today. We can do it tomorrow. Or uh, we'll just try, and, we'll try another time. I mean, this is where Jesus lives. He'll be, he'll, he's around. Uh, maybe, we'll, maybe, maybe we'll catch him, uh, you know, at, at the temple. Or, or they, say, they might have said something like this. Well, we, we did the best we could. I mean, we carry this dude the whole way here. We're kind of tired, and we did the best we could, and we still got to carry him back. So uh, let's just not worry about it. Or they might have said, well, E for effort. You know, we did, the, we did whatever. Let's just go grab some Chipotle instead. Um, but we see that their faith has heart. And when I say faith that has heart, I'm talking about faith that doesn't quit. Faith that doesn't give up. Their faith wasn't put off by the physical obstacles or by the social etiquette. Faith doesn't quit. Faith endures. It doesn't lose heart. There's so many reasons you and I lose heart. There's so many reasons why our faith lacks heart. One of the reasons is pride. Pride. This past uh, Thursday, I flew out to South Dakota, flew to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and drove an hour to Mitchell, South Dakota, which is home of the only corn palace in the world. 
You gotta Google that. Don't Google it now, listen to me. But later on, Google Corn Palace, and I'll show you pictures. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's crazy. Um, but I got up, my flight was at 7.45. I was flying from Syracuse through Chicago to Sioux Falls. And I got up, and my friend Jeremiah came and picked me up. I said, can you pick me up around 6.30? I like to be at the airport about an hour before it takes off, if, if it's a domestic flight. And uh, so he picks me up. I was a little bit late out the door. I was having a little trouble getting up. And so we got to the airport probably around um, 6.55, about 50 minutes before my flight's going to take off. I say, thanks for the ride. I run to the airport. I reach in my pocket. No wallet. No ID. And I'm like, oh, no. And so I quickly text him, hold up. Like, don't leave. And I looked at my bags, looked at my bags, and then I call, I wake up Aaron. I'm like, Aaron, can you go downstairs? Is my wallet downstairs? And sure enough, it's there. And I got 50 minutes. I'm at Hancock, and I live in Clay. So part of me was like, I, I might as well not even bother. I'm never going to swing this. But I just, I was flying on someone else's dime, and I was going to speak at something. So I was like, I got to give it the best effort I can. And so I run out to the car. We take off. We may or may not have violated some traffic laws uh, along the way. And uh, we get home. Aaron graciously runs out in the freezing cold, hands me a wallet. We take off. We come back. I get back to the airport, and it's 7.25. My flight leaves in 20 minutes. And if you fly a lot, you know that they close the doors about 10 minutes before, so I basically got 10 minutes to get from the door, front door of Hancock, which is all construction there now, uh, up the elevator, up the escalators, through TSA, to my gate, which happened to be the furthest gate from the security line. So I, I was dreading a lot about this. I was dreading the run. Uh, you know, I was dreading, I was dreading, I knew I had to sprint and, uh, you don't ever want to be that person who's sprinting through the airport. So I did a dead sprint through the airport, up the escalators to the line. But the moment I was dreading the most was what I knew I had to do next. I had to ask everybody in line to let me budge. Some of you that might not bother a lot, but there's something in me that that really bothers me. I hate inconveniencing people. I hate drawing attention to myself in that moment. I hate being that person. And I often tell myself, well, the reason why I, I, the reason why I don't like to do that is because I'm, I'm, really, I'm a considerate person. That's, that's why. But if I'm honest, it's my pride. I don't want to come across as somebody who is so irresponsible that he has to now beg a line of strangers to get to the front. Now, I was so desperate in that moment, I just didn't even care. I just went through, I went under all the things. I walked right to the people at the front line. I said, listen, and I'm out of breath. They can probably barely understand me. I was like, listen, can I get in front? I'm about to miss my flight. And they were very gracious and they let me go through. And then TSA ran my bag twice. So I was like standing there dying, like, come on, let's go. <laughs> and I ran and I literally got to the gate as I heard the uh, gate uh, agent saying to the last passenger before me, you need to get on, we're closing the door. And so I got on and I got on the plane and it took me half the flight to catch my breath. Um, You know, the truth is in life, we don't want to appear desperate because that's a position of weakness, isn't it? And we don't want to appear helpless because that's a position of vulnerability. And the last thing we want to do is be vulnerable to others. And part of it is because through life experience, we've learned that when people think you're vulnerable, they take advantage of you. Some of us have experienced that. But the position of faith can never be a position of pride. The position of faith, faith that has heart, always recognizes, God, I'm desperate for you to do something in my circumstances. I'm helpless to navigate this and to solve this situation. If you don't do something, I'm going to miss my flight. 
If you don't do something, I'm not going to see what you've put in my heart to see. Sometimes our pride stands in the way. Sometimes what stands in our way is that we have other options, right? We have other things we can look to. We're trusting God for something, but we've learned how to do without that thing. And so we're just kind of settled for it. Or we're trusting God for something, but there are other things that we're trusting in as well. And so sometimes God gives us that and sometimes maybe something else, whether it's pleasure or control or power or relationship, that gives us that also. And so now we've learned, hey, if God doesn't seem to be coming through, I don't need to keep going. I, don't, I can quit. I can stop doing it because I'll find it somewhere else. We think we have options. And the other thing is that sometimes, especially in our world today, we're actually very used in our society, especially in America, to things being easy. If Staples has their button, right, the easy button. It was, that was easy. We're used to things being easy. We're used to things not being difficult. And if we don't get it the first time, we tend to give up. But you and I, like these four men and their friends who was lying on the mat, we need a faith that has heart. Galatians 6.9 says, don't grow weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Have heart. Faith that has heart. So maybe at this point you're wondering, okay, so if I have faith that has heart, if I have faith that doesn't give up, and faith that doesn't quit, then does that mean my faith, it's guaranteed to change my circumstances? It's guaranteed to change God? Of course not. But you know what it is guaranteed to do? It's guaranteed to change you. If you have faith that has heart, it may not change your circumstances, and it may not change the way you think God should do things, but faith that has heart has a way of changing you. And you are the biggest issue in your life. You are the thing more than any circumstance or anybody else in your life that needs change. So what are you asking God for in 2018? What are you having faith for? I wrote down some things that maybe people are are having faith for. Maybe some of you are having faith that someone that you love and know who is far from God will be brought near to God. Don't quit. Don't give up. Have heart. Keep asking. Maybe you're asking God to restore a relationship between you and a family member or you and a friend. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't think because it's not easy because this relationship is hard because reconciling is difficult because I've learned to do without that relationship and I have all these other relationships to fill up my heart. Don't give up. Maybe you're saying, God, in 2018, I want you to help me step out in new ways and use my talents and use my gifts in this church and use my talents and use my gifts for your kingdom. Don't give up. Or God, use me uh, and use my generosity to bless other people in need. Let your faith have heart. Sometimes in life, isn't it true, and sometimes in the Christian life, we gotta bear down. We do. We gotta bear down. We have to press in. We have to hold on. We have to be tenacious. We have to be bold. We have to have guts. We have to have grit. We have to have heart. And faith that pleases God has heart. The second thing that we see in this story about the faith of these four men is it's faith that has heart, but it's also faith that has brains. Faith that has brains. It says that when they couldn't get near Jesus because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, they removed the roof, they made an opening, and they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, here's what I want you to notice. These guys came up with a creative solution to their problem. They didn't get to the house and go, God, we have faith that you're going to get our friend before Jesus. And then they sat back and just said, whatever you're going to do, God, we're just going to receive. They looked around and said, we got brains. What can we do? And they climbed up the roof. Now, here's some information about this roof. This is from a commentary that I read. The typical roof back then was constructed of timbers, which were laid parallel to each other, about two to three feet apart from each other. Then crosswise over the timbers, sticks, smaller sticks, were laid close to each other, and that formed the basic roof. 
So big chunks of timber going one way, small sticks going the other way. And then on top of the sticks, they laid reeds and branches of trees and thistles. And then the whole thing, then they put on top of all of that, a foot of sod, a foot of earth which was then packed down to resist water. And so when it was all said and done, these roofs were about two feet thick. And then during the spring, grass would actually grow on these primitive roofs. So when these men went up and they started to take the house apart, what they really were doing was they were digging through the ground. They were digging through dirt. They were removing sticks. They were looking for a specific strategic hole in the timber so they could lower their friends. Faith isn't just about heart. Faith isn't just about effort. Faith isn't just about guts. It's also about creativity. It's also about thoughtfulness. Here's what I'm saying. Faith in God should never lead you to passivity or to fatalism. I have faith that God can do whatever, so I'm just gonna sit back and watch him do it. It should always lead to creativity and effort and partnership and strategy. See, God is always at work, isn't he? God is always at work, but that's not an excuse for us. It's never an excuse for us not to be at work. We are created to partner with God's work. There's an interesting story in 2 Kings chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. I'll just tell it to you real quick. 2 Kings chapter 3, there's a man named Joram who's king of Israel. And these are the 10 northern tribes. And they're having an issue with Mesha, the king of Moab. They used to be buddies, but then Joram became the new king. And now Mesha wants to fight, and they're bullying him. And so Joram, the king of Israel, the northern 10 tribes, he, he, he knows he cannot defeat the Moabites. So he goes down to Jehoshaphat, who's the king of Judah, which is the two southern tribes. And he says, hey, buddy, come on, let's partner up and let's give this guy a beating. And so they, 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 they partner up. And they head off to fight the Moabites, but they're not sure which route to take or what their strategy should be. And so they said, we need a prophet. We need the word of the Lord. And Jehoshaphat says, we got one. His name is Elisha. And so they call, they call Elisha, and Elisha says to Joram, I'm only doing this because of Jehoshaphat. You're evil, but Jehoshaphat honors God. And then Elijah, Elisha says this in verses 16 through 19. He says, God says to dig ditches all over this valley. Get out your shovels and dig ditches. And here's what will happen. You won't hear the wind and you won't see the rain, but this valley is going to fill up with water and your army and your animals will drink their fill. This is easy for God to do. He will hand over Moab to you. So God says through Elisha, dig a bunch of ditches. And here's what happens next. God, not through rain, but through a flash flood, fills those ditches with water. And it does two things. Yes, it provides water for the army and for the animals, but more significantly, when the sun rises, the sun looks like it's red. And so as the ditch water, as the water in the ditch reflects the sun, now it looks like the water in the ditches is blood. And the Moabites from a distance look and all they see is blood everywhere. And they say to themselves, oh good, Israel and Judah turned on each other. They fought each other. They slaughtered each other. Let's go loot their camp. And so they go not prepared for war, but prepared for a shopping spree. And they get there and Israel and Judah are ready for them, and they give them the beating of their lives. Now, here's what we have to realize. God sent the water, but who dug the ditches? They dug the ditches. And there's sometimes in our lives when it comes to how we exercise our faith, we gotta dig ditches before the water's there. We gotta work, we gotta be creative, we gotta come up with solutions, we gotta partner. What are you doing to connect your creativity, your intellectual ability, your problem solving and strategic efforts with the faith that you have in God's power? It's one thing to say, I got a lot of faith in God. It's another thing to say, I'm actually gonna take out some steps and start doing some things and using the gifts that God's given me. 
Faith has brains. Let me give you some examples. Some people say, well, God, give me faith to help me lead people to you. I want to see people get saved. I want to see lost people know you. Well, what are you doing strategically and creatively to position yourself to be near people who need Jesus? Have you met your neighbors? Have you invited them into your house for dinner? Go join a class or go join a gym or an organization where people who need Jesus naturally gather. Go to the same barista every place or every day uh, if you can afford coffee every day. Uh, I've been getting my hair cut by the same person for years because it's one of the only people that doesn't know Jesus that I get to see on a regular basis. So it's one thing to say, God, I just want, I want you to use me to help people know you and love you. And it's another thing to position yourself strategically and creatively to be around people who need to know and love Jesus. What are you doing? Some people say, God, give me more faith to be more self-disciplined in my life, to walk away from the fridge, uh, to go to the gym, to read. What are you doing to invite accountability into your life? Who's the person in your life that's able and invited to ask you hard questions? What are you, you know, what practical tools are you using to help yourself? If you're very disorganized, there's 100 apps I can recommend to you to start using. Well, that's not very spiritual, but that's part of faith. Faith doesn't just have heart. Faith has brains. I'm actually going to do something. Some people say, God, give me faith to serve your people. Well, let's have a conversation. You want to serve? There's places you can serve in this church. We, we need more people to serve. We need people to help clean. We need people to help greet. We need, we need people to help serve in lots of different ways. Be willing to serve in all sorts of ways. Some of you are saying, God, give me faith to do great things for you in 2018, great things with my life. And here's my question. Are you willing to do small things for him, so to speak? Are you faithful with the little things? We don't, so the faith that pleases God doesn't ignore, underestimate, or leave behind God-given intellect, ability, and resourcefulness, this faith has brains. So faith that has heart, faith that has brains. And the last thing we see about these guys' faith is this. It's faith that has friends. Did you notice that when they lowered the paralytic into the room and Jesus saw it, it, said, he said, it says this, and when he saw their faith. Now Mark doesn't waste words. We talked about this last week. Mark is the briefest of the gospels. Every word Mark uses is significant. And it says that when Jesus saw their faith, who's he talking about? He's talking about the four friends and the paralyzed man. When, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. And we learn a powerful principle here, that there's something about combined faith that can have impact in the life of an individual. It's exactly what happens here. Join your faith with others. Let your faith have friends. Let your faith have friends. Let your faith have friends that it, that it prays with, friends that it speaks with, friends that encourage it. Don't remain alone. There's something powerful. Isn't there something powerful about speaking out loud the things you are believing for and letting other people know so that they can join your faith, they can join their faith with yours, but also it can help you in your efforts. Whenever I'm trying to lose weight, which is just this perpetual thing in my adult life, but whenever I'm trying to lose weight, I, I've learned that I need to do something very important. I have to text my friends that I have lunch with on a regular basis. And I have to say, hey, for the next three months, I'm eating differently. Don't let me eat like a fool at lunch. Like, hold me accountable. Because until I say it out loud, until I pass the information along, as long as it's just in here, then it's very easy to just sort of forget or ignore or just say, I'll start tomorrow. But as soon as I've invited friends into my faith, now there's a level of accountability and support that I didn't used to have. And here's the other thing about faith that has friends. When, when faith has friends, the power is this. We can gain confidence and strength from seeing one another's faith. 
Because sometimes, if we're honest, we walk in here on a Sunday morning, and that particular morning, we don't have a lot of faith. We're not feeling it. It hasn't been a good week. It's been a very difficult week or a difficult month or, or a difficult year. And you're standing here, and we stand up, and we sing these songs about God's amazing grace and his endless love for us, and we're just like, ah, it's hard to sing sometimes. But then you look around the room, and what happens? You see other people singing. And you know their story because you're in relationship here. And you know what they've gone through. And you know what God's brought them through. And it's your confidence that begins to give me confidence. It's your faith expressed through singing and through giving and through gathering that gives me faith to do the same. Um, I flew back home yesterday from South Dakota, South Dakota through Dallas, through Philly, to Syracuse last night. And, um, you know, I fly a lot. And so I've learned what's a big deal and what's not a big deal on a plane as far as turbulence goes. But you can tell who's never flown before, right? The first little, they're like speaking in tongues. And, 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 uh, but I, I'm, I'm relatively used to it. But there's been a few times where I've thought, this isn't normal. This is a little more than just a little bit of turbulence. And you know what I do in those moments? I look at the, I look at the stewardesses. I look at the stewards. I look at the attendants, the flight attendants, because I want to see their faces. Do they look nervous? Because if they look nervous because they fly all the time. If they look nervous, then I start praying in tongues. But if, if they look totally calm, it gives me confidence, right? This is the power of faith that has friends. Sometimes we have to look at each other and share each other's faith because we can't muster up our own faith. And so your faith sustains my faith. And this is why it's important. Faith has friends. We come together and Jesus saw their faith and he moved on their behalf. So faith has heart, faith has brains, and faith has friends. And what we see in this first half of the story is this remarkable faith. But what we want to look at as we finish this morning is Jesus' remarkable response. In verse 5, you can put it up there again. It says that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. I just, can you imagine the tension and the electricity in the room at this point? They're sitting there, they're listening to Jesus teach, and all of a sudden they start to hear from above Somebody's doing something. They're thinking, oh, maybe somebody's repairing some sod or planting some flowers. Or, and all of a sudden, they start to see the sunlight start to break through and they start to see hands pulling at the sun. And then all of a sudden, the branches start getting moved and things start getting pulled. And then all of a sudden, they see guys looking down and, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the next thing you know, there's... A, and can you imagine, like, by the time they lower this guy into the room, I don't know how long the, thing, the whole thing took, but by the time they lower him into the room, I'm sure the room was, there's tension you can cut with a knife. What is gonna happen next? And Jesus' response floored everybody. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, there are two types of surprise, two groups of people who were surprised. And one is recorded and one is not. The one that's not recorded is we don't actually get the reaction of the four friends. We actually lose them at this point in the story. But what was their reaction? I have to imagine that they've made all this effort to get their paralyzed friend before Jesus And Jesus speaks and he says, your sins are forgiven. And I'm sure on some level, they and the paralyzed man were sitting there going, great, cool. And? (laughs) I didn't come here for that. And and they're probably thinking, Jesus, everyone in the room is like, he he doesn't realize this man's paralyzed? Like, he doesn't realize why this man is here? Jesus has completely missed the point of everything. But the truth is, is everyone else in the room missed the point. Because here's the point. Forgiveness of sins is the most important thing Jesus can offer anyone. Forgiveness of sins is our 
deepest need. This is our primary need. Stories like this mean more to me now because of our youngest daughter, Madeline, who is paralyzed in her, in her right arm and really in her legs on some level. And so I read stories like this. I, I, I kind of put myself into these stories a little, a little bit. And I, you know, we pray for her and you know, help, pray with us. And uh, she's been having seizures lately. She, she had one a couple nights ago. And so um, they're managing it with medicine. But there's these challenges that she faces. So I read these things. I think we pray for her to be healed. We pray for her not to have seizures anymore. We love for God to loosen up those muscles and to restore that arm and to heal that brain. And, and, and we would love to see all of that. But I have to remind myself at times, her deepest need is forgiveness of sins. Like, if you have to choose... Choose forgiveness of sins because we're, all our bodies are going to break down eventually and we're all going to get new resurrected bodies someday. But the forgiveness of sins, that's an eternal issue. So when Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven, he didn't miss the point. He was teaching them this is the point. This is why I came. Now, the other response of surprise is actually recorded in the text and let's read it in verses six and seven. It says, now some of the scribes, these are religious leaders, were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know what? They're 100% correct about their premise. They're 100% correct. God alone can forgive sins. So their premise is right? And they understand something about forgiveness that we talked about actually on Christmas Eve Sunday morning. Remember I talked about forgiveness and I said, one thing that's true about forgiveness is only the offended party can offer real forgiveness. If I smack Joe in the face, Jim can't forgive me for smacking Joe. I have to go to Joe and ask forgiveness. And so only God actually can offer the forgiveness that we need because all sin is first and foremost against him. It's rebellion against him. You don't break commandments two through 10 unless you first break commandment one, which is have no other gods before me. So yes, we do hurt each other and we sin against each other and we do that individually and we do that uh, corporately and we do that as a nation and we've done that through history. We do it all the time, whether it's through racism, uh, whether it's uh, through gossip, all sorts of ways that we sin against each other. But first and foremost, we sin against God. So the forgiveness that we primarily need is forgiveness from God. When David committed his great sin in his Psalm of Repentance in Psalm 51, he said, God against you and you alone have I sinned. And there's a part of us that goes, are you sure, David? Are you sure? Because you sinned against some other people too, I think. And David wasn't saying that he's not responsible and that he doesn't need to ask forgiveness horizontally. But what he's saying is that the reason I ever sinned horizontally was because first I sinned vertically against you. And so only God can offer forgiveness. And so they're right here, but they don't know who Jesus is. Let's keep reading the story. We'll finish it. Verse eight, it says, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. So this is Jesus. He's sensing whether he's a word of discernment, a word of knowledge, or the Holy Spirit is speaking through him, or whether this is just part of him being fully God. He knows what they're thinking, and he says to them, why do you question these things in your heart? And then he asks them this question, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now Jesus asks a really interesting question here. He says, which is easier? Is it easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven, or is it easier for me to say, pick up your mat and walk? And the answer to his question is, 
Well, it depends. It depends what you're talking about. Because on the surface, it's actually easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? Because that's invisible, and it's impossible to measure or disprove. It's sort of like the difference between me coming up to you and saying, I have a headache. You kind of have to take my word for it, right? I mean, you might be able to see it on my face. You might be able to... I say I have a headache. It's invisible. You can't really disprove it. But if I say to you, I broke my arm, you're going to say, well, your arm's moving fine. Where's your cast? It's the same deal here. Deal here. Jesus is saying, what's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And so on one hand, it's harder to say, take up your bed and walk, because if the man doesn't get up, then the one who said the words will be shown that he had no authority to say them and no authority to heal and shown to be a fraud. And so when this man gets up and walks, what it did in that room, what it did in that town, what it did in the hearts of those people was it validated Jesus' authority and it validated his, supported his claim of who he was. However, on a deeper, more profound spiritual level, it's actually much harder to forgive sins than it is to say to someone. Why? Because only God can forgive sins and also because it's so costly. Forgiving sins is so costly. And this is the other truth about forgiveness that I mentioned on Sunday morning of Christmas Eve. Not only can forgiveness only be offered by the offended party, but forgiveness always costs someone something. It always costs someone something. There are some commentators, N.T. Wright being one of them, who believes that this actually was Jesus' home, that this was his house. And so when they tore the roof apart, they were tearing Jesus' roof apart. And so now he's got to fix it. He's got to, so when they lowered him down after tearing his roof apart, and the first thing Jesus said is, you're forgiven of your sins, I wonder if some people thought, oh, Jesus is forgiving them for tearing, forgiving him and them for tearing his roof apart. But, but here's the thing. If Jesus were to say to them, you're not forgiven for tearing my roof apart, then they would have had to bear the cost. They would have had to put the roof back together. They would have had to come up with the money. They would have given of their time and their effort. They would have bore the cost of a lack of forgiveness. But if Jesus said you are forgiven, the cost doesn't just go away. It transfers. It goes from them to him. If he says, walk out of here, don't worry about the roof. Now who bears the loss? He either bears the loss of a roof or he bears the cost of repairing a roof. And it's the same thing in any sort of forgiveness. Nobody just forgives. There's always loss, and there's always a cost. It's simply a matter of who's going to bear it. If you don't forgive, you ask the other person to bear it. But if you do forgive, then you bear it. And we get to something very important here, because any miracle worker could heal somebody, but only Jesus can proclaim that someone is forgiven of sins. Why? Because, number one, he is God. And number two, he paid the cost. He paid the cost for the forgiveness of sins. One of the commentators summarizes this story this way. What a display before the wondering crowd. Who is to say that this paralytic and his four friends did not dance down the street while the crowd clapped in rhythm? And as he went home, he bore something far more impressive than his bed. It was a clean heart. The greatest miracle of all. No guilt, no bitterness, no tension. See, someday those newly restored limbs, they would wither again. But there would always remain in him a well of water springing up to everlasting life because his sins have been forgiven. The Lord can do anything he wants. He can heal any disease he pleases. But the greatest miracle is that he forgives sins. And because Jesus is God, and because his sacrifice provides the forgiveness of sins, we can have faith. We can have faith in him. And one final thought before we finish is this. What makes Christian faith unique? 
What makes our faith different than other religions' faith and the faith that other people have? There's two things that make our faith unique. Number one, it's source, and number two, it's object. Our source is God. In Romans 12, 3, it says that God gives us faith. So the very faith that we have to honor God and please God with, faith that has heart, faith that has brains, faith that has friends, that faith first came from God to you, and now you're expressing it through your life to him. So we're gratitude. there's gratitude as we express our faith. So our source is unique, but our object is unique too. Now, imagine you and I, I've used this example before, but I think it's helpful. Imagine you and I are out for a walk in nature, and we're walking alongside a cliff, and a big gust of wind comes and blows us over. Have to be a big one to blow me over, but a big gust of wind comes and blows us over, and we fall off the cliff, and as we're falling off the cliff, we're, we're, we're desperately grasping for something to hold on to. And I wrap my arms around a tree trunk that happens to be going out of the side of the cliff, and you grab onto like a little twig. You know, sovereignty of God, it's not my call. It's just, it's just, it's just, it's just you know, more favor, less labor. So I, I, I grab onto this thing, and let's just pretend that I'm the one who's really scared, right? I'm the one who's screaming and crying, and, and I'm, I'm like, we're going to die. We're never going to make it. This thing's not going to hold me. We're going to fall. And you're over there saying, come on, dude, we're going to be fine. You got all the faith in the world. You got a lot of faith. You got a lot of confidence. I got a little bit of faith. But in the end, as long as we both can hold ourselves, who's actually going to be safe? Who's actually going to be saved? Me. Why? Because I'm holding on to the right thing. See, we're not saved by the amount of our faith. We're saved by the object of our faith. There's a lot of people that have more faith than you this morning, but it's not in the right thing. But if you place just the faith the size of the seed, a mustard seed in God, in Jesus, in his work, it's enough. It's enough. It doesn't stay small, by the way, because the longer, you, the longer I hold on to the tree, guess what happens? The more my confidence grows in what's holding, what I'm holding on to. Now, the only problem with this illustration is that it's not really me holding on to God. It's really God holding on to us, isn't it? But you get the idea. It's not the amount of our faith that secures us, or the strength of our faith. It's the object of our faith. You might say, I don't know if I have enough faith. It's not about how much faith you have. It's where's your faith directed? Is your faith in Jesus? And if your faith comes from God, and if your faith is in Jesus, then guess what? You have all the faith you need. All the faith you need. And it will be the type of faith that has heart, brains, and friends. And God will use it to radically change the lives of those that you bring before him, that you carry to him, both in prayer and in practice. Let's pray together.